Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. And if I sound a little different on this episode, it's because in deference to corona norms, I'm actually recording it myself without the aid of our excellent sound engineers. Right now, I think the most immediate question on my mind, and it may be on your mind too, is how do I know if my symptoms or those of one of my loved ones actually correspond to coronavirus? There's tons of information going around on the internet, and it's a little hard to know what's reliable and what isn't. I thought it would be useful to talk to a frontline primary care physician who's actually in charge of programs where lots and lots of doctors are seeing patients who are presenting with coronavirus. So I called Dr. Rebecca Berman, the program director at the University of California, San Francisco's internal medicine residency program. That means she's the person in charge of training the actual doctors who are going to become residents in internal medicine. And internal medicine means in a hospital, the main job of seeing patients. I asked Rebecca about how we should be thinking about symptoms, which symptoms actually tell us that we should go to the hospital, what we should do if we're not going to the hospital, and how preparedness is going inside UCSF. Rebecca, you are literally on the front lines facing the current coronavirus situation. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us how you and your physicians in your training program are doing the first-line diagnosis. When someone comes in to the hospital and says, I'm feeling lousy, I think I have coronavirus, what algorithm are you guys using? Well, I think something that's challenging about coronavirus is that for a lot of people, they functionally have cold symptoms. So we're all kind of worried. I have chronic allergies, and it makes me worried constantly. Like, is this runny nose different than the normal runny nose that I always have? And so I think... 
For us in the hospital, the things we're most worried about and the people we're actually testing are those who seem sick, those who are having shortness of breath or fever. The presenting symptoms can just be cough and runny nose and in some people is asymptomatic. So we're also seeing our primary care clinics kind of flooded with people who are worried and want testing. But right now, given the limited number of test kits that we have, we're trying to encourage people not to come in if they aren't actively feeling feverish and short of breath because simply testing someone who's not that sick but symptomatic is going to result in the same treatment, which is to tell them to self-quarantine at home for 14 days. It is really hard for people to be stuck at home right now, although frankly here in San Francisco, most people are stuck at home right now. But that is what we are doing in terms of diagnosis at this point. We are trying to triage. We have a COVID-19 infectious disease doctor on call at all times, and we run cases by them in order to choose who needs testing. I completely understand that from the hospital's perspective, you don't want to be flooded with people who might be positive, but can't at present be treated. So it makes sense to say only come in if you have the shortness of breath uh, and the fever. In terms of people's own self-diagnosis at home, though, however, there's sort of like a plethora of information out there, much of it surely inaccurate. And I've heard all kinds of things, you know, people saying, well, you know, if you have a runny nose, that's not it. And others saying, well, if you have a sore throat, that's it. But if you're coughing, that's not it. I mean, I guess what I'm wondering is, first, just at the very basic level of the science, is this all ridiculous? I mean, is it in the end, the full range of cold-like symptoms could be indicators of COVID-19? Well, I think what's hard is in most people, cough is the presenting symptom, often a dry Mm -hmm. cough, but sometimes productive. It's true that runny nose makes it less likely, but it doesn't rule it out. So about 15% of people with coronavirus are going to have runny nose. So if you have a runny nose, it can make you feel a little better, but it doesn't mean definitely you do not have it. The guidelines that our occupational health is giving us um, to help us as healthcare workers know when not to come in are saying if you have two of those symptoms like sore throat and cough or cough and runny nose and they're getting worse over two days, then you should stay home. And so I think using those guidelines more widely is a wise one. I think, did you say uh, 15% of the people who have are positive for the virus do have a runny nose? So the runny nose is not a guarantee, it's not a, necessarily an indicator that you have it, but it's certainly not a reason to think you don't have it. Exactly. And then what about the sore throat? Where does the sore throat fall in? Sore throats also are seen in less than 15% of patients. And similarly, GI symptoms like nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea are seen in a low percentage of patients. So it's really a combination of different elements that give you clinically an indication that you're probably looking at a, a corona case with cough being the most significant and fever the next most significant. And then the things like runny nose or sore throat, they don't have a huge indicating effect, but their absence also doesn't tell you much. If it's, you know, 15 or 20% of the people have that symptom, then the fact that they're not there doesn't tell you very much. If they are there, it might be indicative as well, I guess. I guess if they are there, it's like a little reassuring, but it's not a slam dunk. So I think the advice that if you're not feeling well, stay home and isolate is a good one. And what about the core takeaway question, which is, I'm at home, I think I have these symptoms, I have a fever, it's not terrible, but I don't have shortness of breath, and I have, let's say, a a serious cough. Should I come in, or should I just self-isolate right away? 
I would say you should self-isolate. If you have underlying medical problems like diabetes or you're immunocompromised or you're pregnant, certainly call your physician. But the last thing you want to do is come to a hospital where there are going to be other patients who have this walking around. You would rather stay at home. So I think our biggest fear is that the health system is going to be overwhelmed by what we call the worried well, people who are relatively asymptomatic or have minor symptoms of this disease who are worried and come in when they don't need to. And in this instance, well would just mean well enough that they don't have to be admitted because maybe the worried well in this case actually will have coronavirus, but they're well enough to stay home. So in that sense, they're the, they're the worried well. They're not, they're not the irrationally worried well under no, these no, circumstances. No, no, no. They're just the not intensely sick. Perhaps we should call them the worried mildly sick. That's a, not as catchy as the worried well, but it sounds helpful. So for the, for the rest of us, we'll try not to enter the category of the worried mildly sick, but those people at this point should stay home so as not to overwhelm the, the system. And when you start to feel genuinely sick, that's the time to, to go in. Correct. So that brings me to the really fascinating point that you brought up that I deflected us from because I wanted to know whether we have, we all, how we know whether we have the virus, um, which is the idea that as part of your triage, you'd have to deal with the fact that we just don't have enough tests. And I want to ask you about this because, you know, one of the forms of criticism that one hears of U.S. preparedness here is, well, gee, there are just not enough tests here and there are more tests available in other countries and we should have been better prepared there. And that seems plausible to me. But I've heard a counter argument as well that said something like, well, look, if ultimately it could be between 40 and 70 percent of adults who get this, testing isn't really what's significant at this point. And what's more, if we don't have a treatment for most people, except that they're very, very sick and we you know, put them on a ventilator, the testing isn't really the key. The lack of tests isn't really our problem here. And we should just be more focused on the broader public health response. Do, do you have a much more informed view on that debate than I have? You must. I mean, to me, there's two different questions. Like, having limited testing is extremely stressful on the health system. It actually means we can't test doctors who have been exposed. Or if we test them, how do we know that those tests are correct? Should they really come back to the front line? So from a workforce perspective, that's very stressful. In my ideal world, we would have so many tests available that we could swab everyone who comes into the hospital every few days and make sure that they're they are being protected and that they're not bringing any virus into the hospital. So I do think that there's two different questions. One is, does your average person at home where we can't actually really treat it, is it important for us to have that diagnosis versus the second question of healthcare workers? And then I think the other problem with not having widespread testing, part of the reason Korea's numbers look so great in terms of their number of people who have gotten very, very sick is that they've done widespread testing. So they're testing a whole bunch of asymptomatic people. They have a much better sense of what the denominator is, of how many people have this virus compared mm -hmm. to how many get sick. Here, we're only testing a small portion of people, which means that we don't really know what percentage of people get very sick from this. It seems that it's about 3% of people. But again, we just don't know because we have no idea how widely spread this is. So to me, I mean defunding our pandemic response was a tremendously large error of leadership. And mm -hmm. I'm grateful to our state and local governments who are really trying to step in in this moment. But it would be better if testing were more widely available. Rebecca, I understand that it's tentative, but tell me again, what was that 3% number? That's the number of people whom you think of at present 
who are exposed who are getting very sick? Or is it the number of people who have the coronavirus who are getting very sick? I think um, between 2 and 3% is the number being bandied about of the number of people who will die who get the virus. Right. I, I've heard that number as well. And based, I think it's largely based on the Wuhan statistics, right? Correct. Now, let's move on to what happens when you're treating a patient, the patient comes in, the patient is symptomatic enough for you to give them a test, let's say, you determine they're positive for coronavirus, but they're not so sick that they need to be admitted to the hospital. So you send them home into effectively self-quarantine, correct? Correct. And what is that supposed to mean in real practical terms? I think a lot of listeners out there are wondering, we hear this phrase, self-quarantine, or I guess in that case, self-isolation, but we don't really know how much exposure to other humans that entails. I mean, is it literally meant to be lock yourself in your room and do not see the other people who live in your house if there are any? I mean, in an ideal world, yes, right? It's, it's ideally have a, your own room and your own bathroom and have someone like leave food at the door that you then open the door and get the food and shut it. Recognizing that for some people that's not going to be possible, but, you know, there was a case in Asia of a family of nine who like one of them was on isolation and they all shared hot pot and they all got coronavirus. And mm-hmm. so certainly I think trying to really isolate, I mean, luckily we all have computers. I would recommend trying to be in a room with a computer so you can still have contact with the outside world. I'm hearing lots of creative things that people are doing, you know, Zoom coffee hours and going to art galleries online and things so you don't go bananas. But I do think that it's really important for people to take this seriously, especially if you live with old people or anyone who's immunocompromised. Well, I think probably everybody would take it seriously if they had a positive diagnosis. That The real question, I think, is for people who don't have that and are just sort of at home under self-quarantine or because there's a, a broad shelter-in-place order in effect, the question then is how precise they should be. I mean, they, that it's not recommended that those people self-isolate. That's only if you are confident or you think it's a high probability that you have the virus, right? Yes. So just to be clear, shelter in place is different than self-isolation. Shelter in place is saying stay in your home and share your germs with your family or the people that you live with, but don't go outside and share it with other people. Sort of keep your germs to your little group. It doesn't matter whether it's you and your family or it's you and your roommates or the other people who live in a group house with you. You're going to share, you're going to share germs with those people in an ordinary shelter in place. Right. I mean, the idea is try to be a little more cognizant. Don't share spoons and forks and things and wash your hands a lot. But recognizing that it's impossible for people to completely isolate. That being said, if you have symptoms, act like you have the virus. It doesn't matter whether or not you have a positive test. We don't currently have testing capacity. So people should take this seriously. If you aren't feeling well, isolate yourself from the other people that you live with. And how long should you do that before? I mean, again, this is something that I think has not really fully trickled down to the general listener yet, and it certainly hasn't to me. So if you have flu-like symptoms or cold-like symptoms and your self-diagnosis is like, I don't know if I have coronavirus, I didn't go to medical school, but I'm feeling lousy, your recommendation is go into self-isolation as though you had the virus. Correct. And the recommendations are to do that for 14 days. I think if you start feeling better after a day or two, it's probably not coronavirus. And so you can feel better about coming out of isolation, but, you know, better safe than sorry. But is that true that 
if it's coronavirus, it's not going to go away that quickly? I mean, what if you just had a very mild case of coronavirus? I mean, it's a great question. I think in the end, it's a little bit hard to know, but those are the recommendations that occupational health is giving us at this time. I think what's hard with coronavirus is there are plenty of people who are asymptomatic who have coronavirus. So I think that's where the overlap of public health and medicine happens. So public health is keeping people from spreading it to others, right? Most of us are going to get coronavirus and do fine. Some people are not going to do fine. And so what we're trying to do is protect those people. And so my recommendation to the public would be take this seriously. Like, don't go out with friends. Stay at home. Really try to limit your interactions with other people. I think that's just good practice, whether or not you have a cough or anything else. We'll be back in just a moment. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. What's the scene like at UCSF, at your hospital right now? Is it, you know, I'm sure you're preparing like crazy for things to, to get out of hand. Where are things right now in that process? I mean, actually, we're still in the sort of preparing and waiting, the 
waiting period rather than the storm that we worry is coming. So, you know, the hospital has enacted our disaster plans in terms of canceling elective procedures. So if you were supposed to get a hip or a knee replacement, we have uh, canceled those procedures, things like that, to create openings for patients in case other patients get sick. It turns out a lot of the people who are in the hospital are here for somewhat routine elective procedures. And so by stopping those procedures, you open up a lot of space within the hospital. Um, So actually, our censuses are a little bit down. Right now here at UCSF, at least as of last night, we only had two patients in the intensive care unit with COVID and none at either of our outlying hospitals. So that's great news and we hope it will continue like that, but we worry that it will be getting busier. We are upstaffing respiratory urgent care clinics, upstaffing our emergency room, and um, working with across departments to upstaff our intensive care units um, to be ready. I understand that at your hospital then you're postponing surgery that's technically elective. Should patients proactively, let's say they're not in San Francisco where their hospitals are yet doing the suspension on their own, should patients themselves be trying to judge, gee, if this is elective surgery in the sense that I don't need it right away, I should delay it? partly out of public service to free up hospital beds or partly because they don't want to be in hospitals because that's where sick people are? Um, I think that's reasonable. Frankly, I think most hospitals are going to be moving this way. So it's more a question of whether you're going to postpone your procedure before they start postponing procedures or whether they'll reach out to you. And what about things that the hospitals are short on? I mean, are there things where UCSF has said publicly, you know, like we need more ventilators or we we don't have sufficient protective gear or are you guys because you're sort of at the front end of this and you're also you know, a first-class hospital, are you pretty well prepared in those regards? I would say both of those things. We are well prepared and we are worried about shortages. So we currently have enough protective gear, but there is concern that we have you know, a few weeks worth of protective gear on hand. And so another public health thing that people can do is not do things like hoard N95 masks at home. You don't need those people who are intubating people with COVID need those. You're doing senior administrative work in this moment. And so I'm wondering, what's the tone like in the meetings? I mean, are people managing to sound as calm, cool, and collected as they sound all the time? I mean, I know doctors are all, one of the things you train people in is to stay calm in situations where normal people would be freaking out. Is that sort of how it's operating in the meetings? Are are people exaggerating their calmness in order to seem calmer? Or is it sort of business as usual in some sense? Uh, It's not business as usual in the sense that people are really working together in a way that I think is actually really admirable. So, you know, UCSF is a big sprawling place with a bureaucracy like any big sprawling institution. And I've been really impressed with how things that previously would have taken a year to roll out or years to roll out are rolling out in days um, because people are really working together. So, for example, telemedicine we had, you know, a very small percentage of our outpatient visits were being done by video visit. And then a week and a half ago, when we had our first sort of disaster planning full day retreat, uh, it was decided that telemedicine should convert like 50% of our ambulatory visits in a matter of days. And now we're converting almost 100% of our visits to video visits. And that has happened. That kind of huge change in a complex bureaucracy is usually really hard to maneuver. And so I've been super impressed with how 
people are coming together across the organization to make these things happen. So every day now within my residency, we have a daily planning huddle where we meet for 30 minutes and kind of plan out what needs to change next. And then on a hospital level, those are happening. And then we have a special workforce one where we think about how are we going to deploy nurses? What do we do with people who are on home furlough? How can we help them be useful and help while they're in quarantine? So the amount of cross-pollination between human resources and nursing and the physicians and the administration has really been amazing. So I wouldn't say that it has been business as usual. I would say it's been better than usual. And I think while everyone is stressed, people are really working together in a really positive way. That's actually extremely heartening. And it's exactly what, you know, you fantasize life is like inside of a, a big hospital and pre- when everyone's preparing for a crisis. But I, have, I know that in other areas of life, our fantasies of the way the planning is supposed to go doesn't always bear itself out. So it's nice to hear that that's actually happening. Can I ask just a broader question for those of us who are not in San Francisco, which is most of us right now, San Francisco is presumably a harbinger of what it's going to be like for us. So what's it like when you, you know, get up and come to work every day given the the shelter-in-place order? How many cars are on the road? I mean, I know there are lots of people who are exempted from the order, people like you, healthcare workers, but also the people who are doing food service work. And I noticed even that biotech workers are exempt. under. So there presumably are people on the streets. So there are still people on the streets. I mean, people are trying to work from home. So I'm here at the hospital today, and I was in clinic yesterday, but the day before I did work from home, which I wouldn't usually never do. So I do think even amongst the people who are exempted, people are trying to kind of honor the idea of self-shelter in place when they can. But when you go on the street, you do still see some people. I mean, it's a city, right? So the restaurants still have takeout. You'll see people walk up to the door to get it. People love exercise in San Francisco, and you are still allowed to go out and exercise as long as you keep six feet between you and others. And Golden Gate Park was still filled with people running and biking yesterday. So it doesn't actually feel like a desolate wasteland. It feels like a quiet day in the city when there's sort of fewer people. A little bit like Boston feels in the summertime when all of the college kids leave. Speaking of kids, um, your kids are not college age, but what what are you telling your kids and how are they how are they relating to it all? I mean, they're not usual kids. They have two physician parents, but nevertheless, I'm curious to know. So my kids are little. They're four, six, and eight. And we have been um, pretty consistent in the messaging that we're doing all of these things to keep old people safe. Um, we really don't want them to worry about themselves because, frankly, kids do great in this, which as a parent, I find really reassuring. And I don't want them worrying about me going to the hospital every day. Yeah, that's good. I, by the way, I, I heard the uh, I heard the siren in the background, and you know, ordinarily, when we're when we're doing a podcast, we you know we stop, we re-record, we don't hear those kinds of sounds. But the truth is that that's the actual world where you are. You are in the hospital, and those are real sirens. And I think it's part of the part of the reality of of the moment. I just want to conclude. Rebecca, because I want to be respectful of your time and I want you to go back to actually saving people. What is there that you think people in the medical profession understand and know right now that is not getting communicated to the general public? I mean, I asked all the questions that I could think of of immediate things that you know that the rest of us don't know. But I'm wondering, is there something else that I should be asking you that I'm not? I mean, I think the two things are, 
I would really like to see people taking this more seriously. I was pretty distressed by seeing pictures of like spring breakers in Daytona Beach. If we don't all take this seriously, this is going to last much longer. And so my hope is that even if your city has not formally placed you in shelter in place, that people will take this seriously and will start self-isolating. Rebecca, I just want to thank you for what you're doing now uh, in this effort and for spending time with us uh, and for what you're doing every day, even when there's no uh, pandemic in the offing, and wish you and, and your family and your, and your residents and staff very well in the challenging time to come. Thanks so much. It was nice talking to you. I found that a tremendously useful conversation. Dr. Berman really told us what we should and shouldn't be worried about. And one of the things that I realized is that a lot of the information that's circulating out there about what symptoms you should or shouldn't be concerned about is actually inaccurate, not up to date, and not statistically sound. I also realized that there are many, many people who might be sick and even have corona who nevertheless probably shouldn't go to the hospital if they're not too sick. And that, I think, is a very important takeaway that I had not taken on board myself and I think is very valuable for public health purposes. We're going to continue covering Corona with new and special episodes to keep you up to date on the most important issues behind the stories associated with Corona. In the meantime, if you're at home, as you probably should be, be well, be safe, take care of yourself and of others. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with studio recording by Joseph Fridman and mastering by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Godwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com backslash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com backslash podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm late. I'm late. Three very important Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com you know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space.
Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.